X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, October 7th. If you subscribe to The Local, we'd appreciate it. And please tell two friends this time. Last time it was three, today, two friends. Today, back in the day, October 7th, 1996, Fox News broadcast for the first time. Barry Diller, who had been head of Paramount, saw the success of conservative talk radio and pitched the idea of a conservative television news station to Rupert Murdoch. Roger Ailes, who would later go on to become chairman and CEO of Fox, had been working in 1970 as a political consultant for the Nixon administration. He had a memo then to put partisan, pro-Republican, pro-administration news on television. He was obsessed with the power of television. Here's a quote from the memo. People are lazy. With television, you just sit, watch, listen. The thinking is done for you. The memo suggested sending segments pre-packaged and edited by the government to local stations. This style of news would create a new kind of political campaign, one where the Republican Party could avoid skeptical independent reporters. That news project didn't get off the ground in the 1970s, but with Barry Diller's suggestion, Rupert Murdoch's money, and the Rush Limbaugh network of AM radio stations around the country, Fox News built one of the most profitable cable channels in the country and changed America. And back in the day, born in October of 1887, and then in October of 1920, John Reed died of typhus. Born in Cedar Hill at his grandfather Henry Dodge Green's five-acre mansion near today's Washington Park in Portland, Jack Reed's early education included Friday evening dancing class for West Hills Society and the Portland Academy. He preferred Skid Row, the waterfront, and Chinatown. For Jack Reed, the industrial workers of the World Hall was the liveliest intellectual center in town. At 16, Reed was sent to boarding school in New Jersey and then on to Harvard. And if the name John Reed isn't immediately familiar, he remains one of the most controversial of Oregon's native sons, and he was the Warren Beatty character in the 1981 film Reds. My parents took me to watch that movie before I could read. I was a tiny child. I was probably the youngest to see that movie in the theater. I remember very little but the popcorn, maybe some scenes in a train, and the movie was the longest thing I ever saw. Turns out it was three hours and 20 minutes. Jack Reed got famous by reporting on U.S. labor strikes, the Mexican Revolution, World War I, and by being a founder and international delegate for the Communist Labor Party. He was a central figure in Bohemian culture. His best-known book was Ten Days That Shook the World, an eyewitness account of the Russian Revolution published in 1919. It was named seventh among the hundred best works of American 20th century journalism. His enthusiasm for the Russian Revolution led to his death from typhus in October back in the day, 1920, in a Moscow hospital. He is buried in the graveyard of revolutionary heroes near the Kremlin Wall. Thank you to Michael Monk and the Oregon Encyclopedia in referencing Reed's memoir published in the New Republic. Reed saw himself, and this is quoting Reed, neither one thing or another. This is why my impression of my childhood is an unhappy one, why I have so few close friends in Portland, and why I don't ever want to live there again. Reed frequently expressed his contempt for Portland's conservatism, a different contempt, by the way, that Donald Trump shows the city. He revealed a familiarity with and affection for Portland, the Oregon Journal in 1914, around the time of his last visit here. And here is Reed again. Portlanders understand and appreciate how differently beautiful is this part of the world. The white city against the deep evergreen of the hills, the snow mountains to the east, the ever-changing river and its boat life, the dusty oriental brilliancy of Chinatown, the grays, blues, and greens, the smoke-dimmed sunsets and the pearly hazes of August, so characteristic of the Pacific Northwest. You don't have to point out those things to our people. The words are inscribed on a bench in Washington Park, the one memorial to John Reed in his hometown, 
near where he was born. Today we will start with your Quick 6 news headlines. Augustine Elizabeth is back with voices from local protests. And we have an interview with Violetta Mata and Aaron Brown on the transportation measure 26 to 18. This is that metro ballot measure we've been talking about. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. A bit of good news up top. Oregon now has twice as many coronavirus testing kits. From now until December, the federal government has pledged to send 60 to 80,000 tests to Oregon each week. This doubles our testing capacity. These are the rapid antigen tests. They offer results in a matter of minutes. The hope is this will help reopen schools sooner. Still, rather than testing students at the door, for which there's still not enough testing kits, the health authority plans to up contact tracing. Up to now, the lack of testing kits has made contact tracing very difficult. Health officials have only recommended such testing in certain situations, such as when a person is actually already showing symptoms. Now, Oregon is asking that every person who had contact with a confirmed case gets tested. This will allow the health authority to better track asymptomatic carriers and stop the spread. And now, according to experts, for every infected person, there are about 10 close contacts that can now be tested. Officials are careful to remind folks that tests aren't perfect, nor are they going to stop the coronavirus overnight. Here's Governor Brown's quote, We absolutely cannot test our way out of this pandemic. I tested out of health class in high school. I didn't have to go. My friend Kyle Price told me if I studied and I took this test, I would test out of a whole class. That seemed like a cool thing to do. So I did that. I don't know. I probably should have taken health class. Health Authority Director Patrick Allen has set a target of at least 60,000 tested Oregonians each week. And as a result of the increased testing, folks should be prepared for a jump in confirmed cases. But with any luck, cases should decline overall as we head into the holidays. Knock on wood, fingers crossed. Speaking of which, your daily dose of coronavirus data. Yesterday, 301 cases, nine more lives lost to the virus. That brings our confirmed death toll to 581. We're now well past 35,000 cases. 51 new cases were in Multnomah County, 52 in Lane County. That spike has put Lane County officials on high alert. Lane County, of course, is where Eugene is. They've discussed going back to phase one restrictions if the spike persists. Spreading at the U of O, University of Oregon is partially to blame. Over the past four days, the university has confirmed 57 cases. Still, Oregon remains relatively low relative to the rest of the country in confirmed cases. A recent study out of Seattle found that Portland has the second lowest rate of COVID-19 among major cities. The study actually looked at case numbers for Multnomah County, and it listed Seattle as having the fewest cases overall. Las Vegas, Nashville, and El Paso were among the highest per capita, Las Vegas having nine times the Portland rate of infection. Nine times. The study again emphasizes that masks and social distancing are effective at slowing the virus. Stay back! Mayoral candidate Sarah Anarone, who had a big piece of good news with a poll that showed her with 41% and Mayor Wheeler with 30%, she is now suing the city auditor over campaign finance law. In 2018, as we've talked about before, voters passed a series of campaign finance limits, including limits on how much a candidate can loan themselves. According to that charter, candidates can give a maximum of $5,000 to their own campaign. In May, City Auditor Mary Hole Caballero announced that she would begin enforcing many of those rules, but she said she could not enforce the limits on self-funding. She explained that that part of the law would not hold up in court. In a statement, Caballero said that the U.S. Supreme Court, and I am quoting, consistently and soundly rejected any limit on a candidate's expenditure of their funds to finance a campaign. And in late April, she informed candidates that she would not enforce the self-funding limit. About a week ago, Mayor Wheeler loaned $150,000 to his campaign. 
Before that loan, his campaign was floating on about 19 grand. And the Iannarone campaign is suing the city auditor over that decision to allow Wheeler's self-loan. The suit is already proceeding through the courts. A judge has required that Caballero either open investigation into Wheeler's campaign loan or appear in court to explain her decision not to enforce that part of the law. That court date would be October 23rd. Madison High School is going to change its name. And students are petitioning to rename Kellogg Middle School as well. In mid-July, parents and students of Madison High School demanded that PPS, Portland Public Schools, rename the building. The school is, of course, named after American's fourth president, James Madison. Madison sometimes argued against slavery, but the Virginia plantation owner owned over 100 slaves himself. And then the other day, Madison principal Adam Skiles announced that they would indeed change the school's name. In a message to parents, Skiles said that Madison's legacy stands, quote, in direct conflict with our schools and our district's commitment to racial equity. And meanwhile, a fifth grade student at Bridger Elementary has started a petition to rename Kellogg Middle School to Ginsburg Middle School in honor of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In her petition, which has reached almost 3,800 signatures, the student said, we have a lot of schools, far too many in my opinion, named after white businessmen. Both of these schools are currently under construction. They're slated to reopen in the fall. And so school board members have acknowledged that now would be a pretty good time to change their names. Other schools like Wilson High School and Jefferson High School have also been the subject of petitions. In late June, the Thomas Jefferson statue outside Jefferson High School was knocked over by demonstrators. Due to current school board policy, though, the process to rename any school could take one to two years or more. Officials have approved a long-span replacement for the Burnside Bridge. Last Friday, the city settled on a plan for the replacement of that bridge. The bridge turned 94 this year. The new bridge will be a long span. It'll maintain clear sight lines of downtown Portland. It'll have fewer pillars underneath, improving the event space for the Saturday market. And most importantly, the new bridge will be ready to withstand a major earthquake. The same can't be said for all the unreinforced masonry buildings that now are not going to be required to spend all that money to change. The proposal for the bridge was brought to the city by a community task force led by Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kafori and Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson. They've been working on the project for months, during which they gathered feedback from thousands of local residents. The long-span bridge beat out several other options, including a short-span bridge and retrofitting the current bridge. Officials also approved a plan to close the old bridge during construction and simply divert traffic rather than construct a temporary bridge. By the way, I'm guessing lots of traffic during that time. The project expected to cost $825 million. That's a little less than a billion. Construction expected to begin 2022. And a bit of good news. The Rocky Horror Picture Show still on the Clinton Street Theater. The pandemic brought a lot of traditions to a halt. But even with its doors shut to the public, the Clinton Street Theater has kept showing the Rocky Horror Picture Show every Saturday as they have done for 42 straight years. So far, the screenings have been a private affair for some of the theater's workers. One of those workers, Nathan Williams, said that showing up every Saturday is like church service for us. For many, Rocky Horror is a big part of their October celebrations, an excuse to dress up, stay out late, and shout callbacks at a cult classic. Losing the Rocky Horror Picture Show meant losing yet another place where folks can be themselves. Good news is Clinton Street Theater plans to reopen their private screenings for small group donations this month, keeping the dream alive until we can all do the time warp again. Just a jump to the left.
today's Quick Fix Local Rundown. X-Ray. X-Ray journalist Augustina Elizabeth is back with voices from this weekend's protests. Agostina was on the scene Saturday night when police and protesters clashed, including two protesters being hit by a police motorcycle. Please note, this segment includes a description of that interaction and the content may be triggering. This is Augustina Elizabeth reporting with X-Ray FM. I am on 47th and Burnside outside the Penumbra building where officers have recently run over not one but two women. I am here with a group of medics that was first on the scene. I'm just going to ask for their statements. Um, What is your name? Savannah Guest. Pardon? Savannah. Savannah. Savannah, what did you see? Um, we heard calls for a medic uh, about farther down towards the corner, corner, <laughs> corner uh, where we were told that there was uh, two people that had gotten hit by a motorcycle. Um, the one person that we did see and managed to find was the one that was um, laying at that point. She had already been stabilized by another medic. Um, and then um, we started to treat, and then as we started to treat, the cops advanced, um, and then they began pushing people and moving forward and not allowing medics to do what they were trying to do, so we had to move our patient who had just been hit by a motorcycle without an e-collar, without any stabilization whatsoever, which normal protocol would thank you, say not to do that. Um, so we had to move her in order to keep her from being arrested and then after that they began hitting people and pushing the crowd and then they pepper sprayed several people and was there just one woman hit or two um i was only aware of the one and then later i found the two yeah there was the one who was like under immediate duress and the second one had gotten knocked down and like uh, had a shoulder problem, but she was like okay and not in need of like immediate medical attention. So uh-huh. she didn't actually tell us that she was hit until way later, okay. after after everyone else was taken care of. And what then, is your then name? she came up. I'm Evelyn. Um, did you witness any of this? Mm-hmm. What did so, you What did you witness? And can, what is your name? Alicia. Alicia. Mm-hmm. So we were on back corner over at, like, so if this is 47th and Burnside, we were down at, I think that's 46th and Burnside. I could be wrong. We were getting pushed up the street by the cops, and uh, somebody, from what I saw, I didn't see the impact, but I heard that they were hit by a cop, fell to the ground, and hit their head again. Um, This was my understanding from hearing other people talk about that. And then as I was coming around the corner, Alongside them, I saw them fall to the ground, and me and a few other people immediately rushed in. Um, the person, uh, their name was Simona, and they were clearly having a seizure. Uh, the cops that are stationed up on the roof of the Kelly Penumbra building were shining their lights down at the seizing person as they were having a seizure. Um, I called for an ambulance. Uh, it took longer than I've ever had a 911 call take. They said they would send an ambulance and one never came. Um, Probably about five minutes after we called for an ambulance, the cops offered us medical help, um, but at the same time that they they were- Did they peacefully offer you medical help? No, I mean, they were shining lights at the seizing person, which I don't think is peaceful, and they were responsible for the injury in the first place, and the ambulance never came. 
that's what I saw. And then I saw the the person Simona was successfully evac'd uh, through, you know, mutual aid, I guess, or something. It was not the cops, and it was not the ambulance. It was our people. Um, yeah. Cass, I understand that you witnessed the woman that was run over by the police officer. Can you describe what you saw? I saw, you know, motorcycle running into human. Uh, it's kind of a blur. So you saw this motorcycle strike the woman? Yes. Yes. And uh, did the motorcycle stop at that time? No, it swerved around to go past. So it did not stop did to not administer stop. aid? Not at all. No, did, it, it, did it speed away? Yes. So I just want to make sure that I heard you correctly. What I'm hearing from you is that you saw a Portland police officer hit a person in the middle of the street and drive away. Yes, entirely. They they ran into a human and then got out of it and sped away to avoid any sort of repercussions for the fact that they hit a human. Okay. Uh, I saw... So what happened next? Next, I watched... Uh, a fellow, a fellow protester cover instantly of the, the woman, or the person dropped, just dropped to the ground, and I watched uh, another instantly cover with their body because you can't, you can't trust that cops aren't going to brutalize further. Uh, but instantly cover uh, directly next to me on my right side, and I was like, what? So. I uh, stopped, helped cover, and checked if they were okay, and called for medics. Uh, Medics came uh, after a little bit. I mean, they got a run to get there. Uh, Maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. I can't tell time when it's all kicking off. Um, A little bit later, the cops ended up coming out. Violetta Mata and Aaron Brown join Jefferson Smith in a discussion on Ballot Measure 26-218, a transportation measure also known as Get Moving 2020, proposed by Metro. We are joined right now by a campaign worker and a high school student. On behalf of the Let's Get Moving campaign, Violetta Mata is a high school student working on that campaign. Aaron Brown also working on on that campaign. Good morning to both of you. Violetta first, good morning to you. Oh, good morning. I, I learned that you are a student now. Where are you going to school? And are you actually going to school or are you going to a computer? Uh, well, I actually graduated from Franklin. Um, I don't even remember the month because it got out weird. But yeah, I'm currently um, doing remote learning at PCC. Congratulations on your graduation. What was your graduation like? Did you do one of those drive-by things where, you know, people like wave and like, I don't know, throw cookies or, or did you just like stand on Zoom? And no, I, even before the pandemic, I didn't really want to go to a graduation. So kind of worked out for me. Very good. How, how, why'd you decide to engage in this campaign? Um, well, it started when I first got involved with the Asia through um, school. They had a volunteer fair, and that's where I um, met some of the campaign leads at that time. And I joined later in the year. So uh, one of the first things I did with them was, like, participate in the 
People's Climate March. In, I think at that time when I had joined, they had just got additional funding to be split between David Douglas, Park Rose, and PPS. And I don't know, I was like impressed that it was, they were actually doing stuff. And so I got involved. Uh, I did their summer program, Serve the People. And right after that, I um, joined as a campaign lead. Um, and also I got to like, I never, at least for me, I kind of took youth pass for granted. And in the position I was at the time, uh, I was grateful for it. But um, I saw that there were other kids from other schools who didn't have youth pass. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, something to actually fight for. And well, thanks for being with us. Thanks for joining us. Let's bring on Aaron Brown. Aaron Brown, you're, we know each other. Of course, you've been on the show many times. Thanks for joining, and you're working on this campaign. Why did you hook up with it, and how are you doing this morning? Uh, thanks, Jefferson. Happy to be here. Um, the long story short is that over the last 18 months, a lot of community organizations have been shooting spitballs at Metro and saying, you know what, if you're going to go ask voters for this large transportation package, there needs to be as much good stuff in it as possible. We need to be investing in a massive down payment in a transportation system that meets the 21st century needs of Portland. Um, and Violetta kind of speaking about her experience of talking about, wow, it sure would be nice for my family and for my friends if, you know, young people were able to get a free youth transit pass. Um, that was one of the many confessions that Metro ultimately gave to the coalition involving communities of color, environmental groups, um, transportation advocates, business groups, uh, people came together and said, Metro, if you're really going to ask for this big package, we want to see a lot of amazing things in it. And I will be honest, Jefferson, I was really skeptical of this package uh, even a year ago. Um, but I watched the uh, community advocates that successfully lobbied for multiple uh, crucial investments uh, to be part of this package. Uh, and, you know, I'm very excited about UPASS, as obviously feel like it is as well. Um, and that being part of the package is there's a little there's a little distortion, Aaron, on your on your phone. I, your P's are popping a little bit. We're getting a little distortion. I don't know if it's good that you're how Jason. All right, I'll, the mic. I'll try and reposition it. I'm sorry. It, I, God bless y'all for keeping the radio going Thanks, during right. the pandemic. Yeah. The uh, so talk to us about the good stuff. Uh, Violetta talked about the youth pass. I know that it funds youth pass. I know that it funds. Or my understanding is that the initiative would fund free transit passes for students, which can be a big deal for people, uh, for for students who need to get to jobs, for for students who need to get to school. Uh, it can be a really useful thing. Uh, what else? Feel free to say more about that if you want. But when you say, "Oh, I need to have as much good stuff as possible," what's the stuff you're most excited about? Um, so massive safety and retrofits and congestion relief investments on Washington County's TV Highway on 82nd Avenue in Multnomah County, uh, McLaughlin down in Clackamas County, multiple other quarters in farther East County, including 122nd and 162nd, um, a historic investment in safe routes to school investments all over the region, uh, the youth path, as we have previously discussed, uh, the light rail uh, extension from downtown Portland through the West Hills all the way down to Tigard. Um, there are 17 corridors around the region, um, and and this package is essentially just an investment in um, building the infrastructure we need for cleaner air, for lower carbon emissions. Um, and, you know, during a COVID recovery, there's 37,000 jobs that we were able to provide economic stimulus for here. 
what is there not? I've heard a couple of sets of criticisms. One might say from the right, one one might say from the left. From the right, it's the taxes are too darn high. That What is it, 0.7% payroll tax, so that's going to impact businesses. It goes to businesses, I understand it, uh, of 26 people or more, or 26 workers or more, 20, more than 25 workers. What's your response to the criticism that it's going to impact those businesses too much? Well, um, I'll just first say that 91% of businesses in the region won't be paying this payroll tax. Like working families around the region, not going to be paying this. This Businesses with fewer than 25 employees, not going to be paying a dime. Um, This is about the top 9% of corporations in the region. Um, These are the folks that love to put out really nice PR statements about how Black Lives Matter, but then they can't be bothered to pay for the actual taxes to ensure that black and brown Oregonians can cross the street without fear of making it to the other side. Nike and Intel have ambitious statements about their commitment to climate, but they can't find the money to invest in electric buses when 40% of the region's carbon emissions come from transportation and our community literally was on fire this month. So there's always this delay, delay, delay. At the end of the day, these big wealthy corporations that somehow are continuing to make massive amounts of money despite the recession from COVID, um, they don't have the wherewithal to actually put their money where their mouth is and invest in their community. So um, I just do not believe those arguments are in good faith. I think that there's a lot of wealthy corporations that are just trying to find another excuse to not pay for the infrastructure that keeps our region going. Why a payroll tax rather than a carbon tax? One of the critiques that I see is that the tax mechanism could actually be something that addresses climate change, and instead all we're doing it all we're doing is putting on people's putting on people's paychecks or actually extracting it from the businesses. Why not a carbon tax? Um, Jefferson, it's it's really uh, there's no precedent anywhere in the nation for establishing that sort of a carbon tax, right? Like um, this is a I think that the assumption that we can sort of like find the most specific Kaguvian set of of uh, taxing mechanisms to pay for this um, ignores the reality that like there were numerous business advocates that sat in the 18 months of task force meetings over over the at bringing this package together and they switched at the last minute that they suddenly opposed this. So um, I, I also think that. Well, set the businesses aside. Uh, set the businesses aside, right? They're they're looking out for themselves. They're not looking out for the people. So let's talk as people who are wanting to look out for the people. And if it's not going to be, and say, oh, people haven't done it before. We've done gas taxes before. But you're right. This would require to do it differently than this. This is a measure that's, you know, a bigger scale measure of other kinds of transportation packages that have happened. The argument would be that, if there's ever going to be a metro area that is going to do something inspiring on transportation, if there's ever going to be somebody who does, to use your term or use the Peguvian term, to impose significant Peguvian taxes and actually start bending our arc of impact on climate change, what other metro area in the country is going to do it if it's not Portland's metro area? Um, I, I think at the end of the day, like, we need to, you know... I, I appreciate that there's some good faith concerns about the carbon impacts on this. And I will also just say that every major environmental, major and minor uh, centrist, moderate and radical environmental organization in the region has come out in full-fledged support. I mean, 
uh, of this package because they are fundamentally in agreement that building this infrastructure is the backbone to a low carbon transportation future. Um, I am very personally supportive of a carbon uh, system that you're implementing at a statewide level. Um, you know, this conversation today is not about congestion pricing or about any of these other sort of mechanisms. This is not the silver bullet of addressing our carbon emissions from transportation, but we have to have this backbone of an infrastructure that we will be able to run buses frequently and reliably, that we can be investing in the next generation of transit riders like Violetta, and that, you know, the $9 million for the transit electrification is enormous for our carbon emissions, right? Um, so I guess I guess what I would say is that I appreciate that it's always easier to armchair quarterback about different taxing mechanisms. But at the end of the day, this is the largest bond in state history. And we've got a lot of transportation infrastructure that is woefully out of date because we have not invested in our communities of color. I believe it's 60 percent of these corridors run through communities that are predominantly POC, right? Like TV Highway, 40 percent of all traffic fatalities in the entire bit of Washington County happens on Tualatin Valley Highway, right? And that's because ODOT never got around to fixing the dang free, the highway up, right? And so this is our chance to turn that from being a large arterial into like an asset that we can build communities around in Washington County. And as Oregonians, you know, um, if we're asking ourselves what we want to see in the future, like these are the kind of investments that allow us to live those low, car- low carbon futures that we can have safer ways to get to school and allow young people to get access to jobs and education. $659 million in a dozen road building and road widening projects. Uh, is that number accurate? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What was the number? Uh, $659 million on road building no. and road widening. What's the real number? Uh, I don't have the exact real number, but that is a bad faith critique that is assuming that fixing up McLaughlin is a road expansion project. And it, and, and a lot of other projects got looped into there to that number. That is incorrect. These corridors are getting massive overhauls for biking, transit, and walking. And uh, I'm assuming these numbers are coming from Joe Courtright. And I love the guy to death. He's been an instrumental in our fight against the Rose Quarter Freeway expansion. But Jefferson, those numbers are flat out wrong. And I've told him that as well. Like, this is a bad faith critique of the project. Money, uh, money for this. How does, how does passing this impact the, uh, the Broadway uh, Broadway quarter. How does it, this impact the I five expansion? How does money for this impact? And, and you may just say not at all. Uh, but how, how how does this impact the Columbia River crossing by whatever name? Um, it, it's tough to say. I mean, uh, directly the answer is not at all. Indirectly, I think that there's, um, and you know, the, the Broadway corridor. I, I I don't really have any specific information on. Um, it, it's a cool, it's, it's awesome what the city's doing, but I don't think that there's a ton of transportation explicit funding on that. Um, the Rose Quarter Freeway expansion, you know, there's $50 million in this package that's going, I, I, I'm really excited that the money's going to Albina Vision to help do some of the streetwide planning um, around the neighborhood as opposed to, like, widening the freeway, right? Like, this is the sort of stuff, Jefferson, I was talking about. Over the last year and a half, we've whittled down a lot of the, um, at, like, Metro was originally talking, like, Three years ago, TriMet was gearing up to ask the voters to pay for three highway expansions and and the light rail, right? And since Metro took it over, we went in an entirely different direction of actually fixing up these broken arterials. So um, uh, coming back to your question, obviously, if this fails, like, there's going to be just sort of a general hesitancy as it comes to, like, infrastructure. But I, I think that the reality is, is, like, this is our chance to invest in the bike lanes, in the buses, in the sidewalks in the 
in the infrastructure that we want. Um, and, and, and regardless, you know, there's going to be, especially the CRC is going to have a ton of federal funding, right? Like, um, I, I think some of these fights are happening in different courts. And while the success or failure of this will sort of change sort of the political calculus, there's a freeway industrial complex that's eager to gobble up all of that money, regardless of whether or not this gets passed or not. Yeah. And, and if they, and I guess the argument, maybe this is the deal. Like, why does Court Wright, you know, the economist and, and cares a lot about climate change, et cetera, why do, why do like Ron Buell, people who you usually in common cause with on this sort of thing, who have been doing freeway fights for 40 years, uh, why do they hate this thing so much? I mean, I could ask them. It's maybe not fair to ask you, but, but you might also have a response. Like, why do they hate this? What, what's your, why do you think they hate this thing so much? I don't think they spent enough time with Violetta. I think that uh, Violetta's story is that of 2020 Portland. And in fact, I'd love to hear her talk about, like, why she thinks that, like, um, some transportation advocates of a previous generation are so grumpy about a package that includes youth pass. That is something that a lot of community advocates fought for. And, you th- you and think Joe Court, I mean, I, 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 we'll, we'll, I'll get to Violetta, we'll, we'll, and Violetta will have first done the last word. But you, you honestly think that their critique is because youth pass is in it? No, I think that they don't understand the difficult and strenuous and collaborative process that comes about of building a package that incorporates the needs of communities of color, low-income communities, and a bunch of other groups. I think that the two of them are upset that Lynn Peterson did not just take their back of a napkin, like, $20 billion thing that they came up with, as opposed to acknowledging the, like, very difficult and laborious effort that, un- that was undertaken by a bunch of equity groups, by a bunch of climate groups, to fight Metro step every step of the way to get a package that, you know, reflects their needs. And yeah, sometimes you don't get every single thing in there that you like, but you do come up with something that represents a good faith effort of getting towards these values. So it's not that I don't think Joe Courtright doesn't like youth paths. I think it's that like he's never worked in coalition with all of these advocates to like storm a government and demand change or threaten to veto, provide a like costly veto towards passing, you know, at, at kids in the region. Violetta, what's your, what's your biggest hope in this thing? Is it all, is youth pass the primary thing? Anything else you're really excited about this thing? Uh, well, having worked on the youth pass campaign for four years, it's kind of like my main focus. Yeah. But, um, other than that, yeah, I'm like, I'm real happy and hoping to see the, um, improvements on sidewalks and, um, uh, crosswalks and your safer routes to school across the region so that's um some stuff i'm really excited to see and what does maybe this will be our time for just this last question help put in higher relief help communicate why you've cared so much why you've worked so hard on youth pass and why getting out of this package was so important to you well i mean for me like when i started high school i was struggling with houseless being houseless and Having my school provide youth pass kind of alleviated the stress because some people can't afford to go, like, pay their bus fare to go to school every day. They're scrounging for change and being houseless and being poor at the time, like, it was really tough, but it, it took that stress off. And, uh, you know, and then seeing, like I mentioned before, I didn't know that other people didn't have this. And I remember, like, shelter I was sitting out it was closer to the David Douglas district and I remember seeing kids there that were in the same situation I was but the thing was that their school didn't provide them with a way to school and it really limited them and I think that was like one of the things that kind of like pushed me to 
keep working for that long was like it's not fair that we live in the same area or that we're just like in a different district and yet you struggle to go to school but i don't well violetta thank you so much for spending time with us today Aaron Brown, thank you also for spending the time. Where can people find out more? What's your last word? Uh, go to letsgetmoving2020.com, and you can learn all about the measure 26218. Uh, voters pamphlet statements should be in your mailbox in the next week, and let's get ready to vote on some transportation and climate infrastructure. Thanks, both of you. I'll try to use actual words. Thanks, both of you, for all you do, and thanks for spending this time. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Be well. Thanks to Augustina, Violetta, and Aaron for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. By the way, for anybody who's made it this long, occasionally I think I'm going to sneak in fun stuff at the end. I haven't decided what it's going to be, but I'm going to try to think of, maybe with Will's help, sneak in some fun stuff at the end to reward those people who actually listen all the way to the end. I don't know what it's all going to be, but here's one thing. Tomorrow, I happen to know that the Today Back in the Day is going to include Portlandia. It was dedicated October 8th. It's a spoiler. I mean, I know it happened a long time ago, so it's not really a spoiler, but it's also a spoiler of the show tomorrow. I was thinking it'd be a really good day for people to share the local social media post with the Portlandia picture of it being driven through town. We put it on Instagram. We put it on Facebook. Easy to share. So this is a little bonus heads up at the end of the show today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the end. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.